0: Hi and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Krishna Shah and I am a fourth year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm joined by two guests on today's episode. Our first guest is Dr. Pedro Solorzano, a third year anesthesia resident training at Medical College of Georgia.
1: Hi Krishna, thanks for having me.
0: Our second guest is Dr. Anna Mavarez. She is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and a pediatric anesthesiologist here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. It's a pleasure to be here. On today's episode, we will be discussing why an upper respiratory infection can be the bane of a pediatric anesthesiologist's existence.
2: Yes, that's right. This is a really important topic because, let's face it, kids get sick. But what do you do when a child needs an elective or an emergent procedure? There's a lot of factors to consider when answering that question. I'm hoping our discussion today will help both pediatrician and learners understand the decision-making process and the preparation and management of a child that undergoes anesthesia for a procedure.
1: Yes, we will also discuss how the pediatrician plays an important role in preventing respiratory adverse events during anesthesia. When scheduled for a procedure requiring anesthesia, many patients will first reach out to the pediatrician for advice if the child has any cold symptoms. The pediatrician can play a vital role by knowing what signs and symptoms to look out for. This helps optimize the patient before going to the procedure or help to decide if the procedure should be canceled or postponed.
2: Yes, that's right. In many cases, the pediatric anesthesiologist will actually refer patient to see the pediatrician or the pediatric pulmonologist prior to the surgery if there's any signs or symptoms of an undiagnosed or an uncontrolled respiratory condition such as asthma.
0: So this actually helps improve the continuity of patient care. Is that right? Exactly. And good communication
2: between myself, the surgeon, pediatrician, and the patient's family will improve outcomes.
0: So Dr. Mavarez, what does the preoperative anesthesia assessment involve prior to the scheduled elective procedure? So typically a few days
2: before the surgery, our preoperative clinic nurse practitioner will call the child's primary caretaker to assess their current health status which is referred to as pre-screening process. So this is to assess if there's any new respiratory symptoms like cough, runny nose, fever, or wheezing. If there are any of these symptoms present, the pediatric anesthesiologist will decide whether to refer the child to the pediatrician for further evaluation and management, or it will be okay to proceed with the surgery as scheduled. This decision is mainly based on the severity of the symptoms. So if the child is determined to be okay for surgery, what's the next step? It is important to review the patient's medical information prior to the procedure. This is why having an electronic medical record system is really valuable. The medical record helps me prepare for the severity of the child's condition that it's bringing them in from a procedure. For example, if we have a premature baby with chronic pulmonary disease or an asthmatic patient with a recent admission or an infant that is requiring oxygen at home, These patients are at increased risk for respiratory complications during anesthesia. Any available laboratory results, uh, any diagnostic imaging tests, and the history of anesthesia, all that should be reviewed. All of this information helps to create an anesthetic plan and anticipate any possible issues that
0: may arise. That's really good to know. So what is involved in the assessment on the day of the surgery?
2: On the day of the surgery, I'll review the patient's medical history with the parents and speak with the patient if the age is appropriate.
0: This is the time I
2: ask about any allergies, any medical conditions, medications that he's taking, most recent food and drink. We will ask again about recent symptoms of cold, cough, or any other illness, and if there have been any other changes since the patient's last office visit.
0: How does having other medical conditions affect your anesthesia plan? Good
1: question. Good question. Any history of snoring, sleep apnea, asthma, bronchopulmonary disease, or airway reactivity can increase the risk of respiratory complications of patients undergoing anesthesia. We will talk about why these conditions are concerning later in this
2: episode. It's also important to review the vital signs and perform a physical exam focusing on the respiratory system. If the patient is all enough to follow directions, I will ask the child to open the mouth for a quick airway exam.
0: What are you looking for on the airway exam?
1: Well, if a kid is less than three years old, we usually do a simple inspection of the airway. Some kids that have specific syndromes like Pierre Robbins or Treacher Collins or even Down syndrome can be difficult to intubate. If the patient has a small mouth opening, limited neck flexion, small jaw, and a small distance between the chin and the thyroid cartridge, we can potentially anticipate a difficult airway. For older kids that are able to follow commands, we ask them to open their mouth to assess the Malampati score. This is a grading score that guides us to predict the difficult for intubation. A grade 1 or 2 should be easy. A grade 3 or 4 could be a difficult intubation.
0: Are there any other factors you consider? Maybe family history or social history? Yes, I will ask if
2: anyone in the household smokes, inside or outside the home.
0: Why is this information so important?
1: Well, secondhand smoking, as we know, can have a negative health consequence, including a uh, risk of respiratory infections, middle ear infections, and asthma exacerbations. Tobacco smoke exposure increases the risk of airway reactivity, and those undergoing general anesthesia are at more risk of respiratory complications than those who are not.
2: That's correct. I will ask about any complications with previous anesthesia or any family history of anesthesia complications. This will help to choose the right combination of anesthetics to minimize complications. I also will discuss with the parents about the risk of the anesthesia that is planned to be used during the procedure. But before we get into any more details, Krishna, let's work through a clinical case to help our listeners understand how an upper respiratory illness
0: affects our decisions for anesthesia. Sure thing, Dr. Mavarez. So, our first patient is a healthy two-year-old male who presents to the hospital for a scheduled circumcision. During his pre-assessment call, his mother reported that the child was doing well and had no known medical problems. However, today his mom reports that he started having a runny nose and a cough two days ago. She also notes that he had a fever that resolved after a dose of Tylenol. On physical exam, the child is clearly congested. The respiratory exam is significant for Ronchi and wheezing bilaterally. His vital signs are significant for a heart rate higher than normal for his age.
2: That's a great case. Children are especially vulnerable to catching viral illnesses, so it's not a surprise that one day the child seems fine and the next they begin having colite symptoms.
0: I'm concerned about this child's physical exam. The child does not seem appropriate to undergo anesthesia for an elective procedure.
1: You are correct to be worried, Krishna. In fact, any lower airway findings are concerning. In this case, you, you have wheezing and ronchi bilaterally, fever and cough. Respiratory symptoms like this increase the risk of adverse events during anesthesia. That's definitely something we should minimize.
0: Could you clarify how an upper respiratory infection actually affects anesthesia?
2: Well, an upper respiratory infection increases airway reactivity to oral secretions, irritant anesthetic gases, and mechanical stimuli like an endotracheal tube. This can then affect the function of the lungs, causing decreased forced vital capacity, expiratory volumes, and expiratory flows.
0: What about the fever? How important is that in determining whether it's safe to undergo general anesthesia? Keep in mind that we consider a fever to be higher than 100.4
2: degrees Fahrenheit or higher than 38 degrees Celsius. For an elective case, if the child has had a fever within 24 hours, it will be postponed and rescheduled to look for the source of infection. There are some risks of having anesthesia and surgery in a patient with an acute infection process, including
0: bacteremia. That's good to know. So our patient has a physical exam concerning for wheezing and bronchi, but his fever was over 24 hours ago. Is it still okay to proceed with this procedure? If it is an afebrile patient with a history of
2: asthma or an emergency surgery, then you will consider administering a breathing treatment with albuterol preparatively and reassess them, especially during allergy seasons. After the breathing treatment, if there is no improvement based on clinical symptoms, I will decide whether to go ahead or postpone the surgery.
0: So how exactly does having a recent or current upper respiratory infection affect a child undergoing anesthesia?
1: As you may already know, most upper respiratory infections in children are caused by viruses that have a mild self-limiting course. However, performing anesthesia in a child with an acute or recent upper respiratory infection doubles the risk of adverse events, which include laryngospasm, bronchospasm, oxygen desaturations, breath-holding, and coughing.
0: Wow, doubling the risk seems like it can easily tip the risk-benefit ratio in an unfavorable direction. So how do you differentiate a true respiratory condition from just seasonal allergies?
1: Great question. Your eyes and seasonal allergies can be sometimes difficult to differentiate. Normally, our allergies present with a runny nose without a fever. This presents in the children with a history of chronic allergies or allergic rhinitis. These children usually have no changes in activity or even eating habits. On the other hand... Patients with a history of recent sick contacts and acute onset of symptoms are more likely to have an URI.
0: So, assuming that there is a true respiratory infection, what characteristics would make the patient more likely to have one of these adverse reactions? In a patient with a current or recent URI, it is very important
2: to establish the severity of the symptoms. A patient presenting with green or yellow copious secretions, productive cough, bronchi or wheezing, fever, and lethargy or ill appearance should be considered as having a severe URI. This group of patients are more likely to develop respiratory complications with anesthesia.
1: On the other hand, if the child has symptoms like clear rhinorrhea or no fever and otherwise healthy appearing, there is less concern for complications. If any adverse reactions are to occur during anesthesia, they are mild, easily diagnosed, and easily treated compared to children with more severe upper respiratory infection.
2: Those that lie in the gray area are a challenge. The decision whether or not to proceed are based on comorbidities and the surgery urgency. Often, there are also socioeconomic considerations, such as the distance travel for the procedure or financial burden of parental time off from work, It's not
0: an easy decision. There are many factors we consider. That's a really good point. What's the primary care provider's role in helping to optimize the patient's respiratory status prior to a procedure? By understanding the negative implications of a patient undergoing
2: anesthesia with a current or recent upper respiratory infection, the pediatrician may be key in communicating with the surgical and anesthesia team the severity of the disease that may justify canceling or delaying a surgery. The pediatrician has the opportunity to provide anticipatory guidance and education regarding the importance of disclosing recent or current respiratory infections prior to a scheduled procedure to prevent unnecessary risks.
1: Also, the pediatrician is very important in optimizing the management and treatment for patients with chronic pulmonary diseases. Kids with conditions such as asthma and cystic fibrosis have a higher risk of adverse complications under anesthetic care.
0: Those are all really great points, and it's really great to see interdisciplinary work for a pediatric patient. So if a procedure that requires anesthesia is needed to be postponed due to an illness, how long do you have to wait?
2: A child with a current URI or has had one during the past two weeks has a greater risk compared to an URI that happened more than four weeks ago. So patients with severe URI should have an elective surgery postponed for at least four weeks.
0: Okay, that seems like a good timeline. So when you're determining the time course of the URI, do you start when the symptoms started or when the symptoms resolve?
2: Great question. Did you know that an upper respiratory infection may produce error hyperreactivity up to six weeks after infection? So that means we should wait from the time of symptoms resolution.
1: Rhinovirus is one of the leading causes of URIs in children. Other common childhood respiratory viruses are adenovirus and coronavirus. Ideally, children should be healthy for at least four to six weeks before undergoing anesthesia for surgery.
0: Okay, that makes sense. But what about RSV? I know that this virus is especially problematic for young infants and children. Would you have to wait even longer?
1: Yes, if the patient had a severe URI due to RSV, if possible, we will wait until six weeks after the resolution of symptoms. That is because studies have shown that airway hyperreactivity can still be present up to six weeks after the infection.
0: Got it. Dr. Mavarez, would a history of prematurity be considered in your assessment of the risks of anesthesia? Would there be a difference in your decision between a six-month-old and a five-year-old in these situations? That's
2: a good point, Krishna. As we mentioned earlier, the patient's medical history may predispose to adverse events, including the presence of respiratory comorbidities, such as history of asthma or cystic fibrosis. The age of the patient is definitely an important factor to consider. Young patients, especially infants with a history of prematurity, are at higher risk for perioperative respiratory adverse events during anesthesia. I pay particular attention to patients less than 2 years old. This is because even at baseline, they have more reactive airways as compared to an older child. And this is even more dramatic if the child is sick, with a cold, or exposed to tobacco smoke.
1: From a physiologic standpoint, younger patients less than 2 years have a higher likelihood of collapse of the alveoli, greater oxygen requirements, small caliber airways, increased chest compliance, reduced lung parenchymal compliance, and rapid oxygen exaggerations after the induction of anesthesia. These are all factors that cause complications of their way more common in these patients.
0: So in the context of a surgical patient with or without an upper respiratory infection, how does a specific procedure or anesthetic management plan affect the risk for an adverse respiratory event?
1: Although problems can happen anytime, procedures involving the airway, eyes, and upper abdomen tend to be at higher risk. Airway management, like insertion of an endotracheal tube for anesthesia, increases the risk of respiratory complications. The Insertion of an endotracheal tube provokes irritation of the trachea, causing the airway muscles to contract and potentially obstruct the airway.
2: So, Krishna, do you recall what is the medical term for this? Is that laryngospasm? You got it right. Good job. (laughs) Laryngospasm happens when the vocal cords close and can potentially obstruct the larynx, causing rapid oxygen desaturation. This commonly occurs during anesthesia, induction, or emergence of anesthesia when the patient is not intubated. It is one of the most common adverse outcomes that an anesthesiologist should be worried about for a child undergoing anesthesia.
0: So, Dr. Mavarez, how would you manage a patient that has laryngospasm? Well, the initial management for a
2: laryngospasm is administering positive pressure ventilation with 100% oxygen. This maneuver can sometimes be effective in opening the vocal cords. If this is unsuccessful in breaking the spasm, classical teaching is to administer succinylcholine, which is a neuromuscular blocker, either intravenously or intramuscularly if you don't have any IV access.
1: Other alternatives include the use of IV propofol, which is a potent anesthetic that may also relieve the vocal cord spasm and restore the airway. Krishna, can you recall some other adverse outcomes?
0: Um, I think in addition to laryngospasm, you mentioned bronchospasm, atelectasis, coughing, hypoxia, and breath holding. But Dr. Solorzano, what is bronchospasm?
1: Bronchospasm is the contraction of the muscles of the bronchial tree that causes air trapping in the alveoli. Patients present with wheezing similar to an asthma exacerbation.
0: Dr. Mavarez, when you're practicing, how do you manage bronchospasms? Well, when a patient presents with bronchospasm, usually the first step is
2: deepening up the level of anesthesia by increasing the concentration of volatile anesthetic or giving a dose of IV propofol. We also give an inhaled bronchodilator, such as albuterol, And keep in mind that for a severe bronchospasm, the gold standard
0: medication is to give a small dose of IV epinephrine. It seems to me that the management for laryngospasm is to open the vocal cords and we use positive pressure or we can use pharmacological drugs like propofol. And then the goal of managing a bronchospasm is just to achieve bronchodilation. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you got it right, Krishna.
0: Great. Are there any other alternatives for airway management other than endotracheal intubation? Yes. Sometimes we have no choice other than
2: endotracheal tube for surgery. For example, in many intraabdominal surgeries where the surgeons want the patient to be fully paralyzed and relaxed, or if there is a high risk of aspiration, we want to have an airway secure with an endotracheal tube. However, when possible, we can use a laryngeal mask airway or an LMA to manage the airway. The primary benefit of using an LMA over an endotracheal tube is that the LMA is less invasive since we don't have to instrument the airway to place the LMA. So the insertion of an endotracheal tube causes continuous stimulation of the airway, predisposing to respiratory complications. The use of an LMA lowers these complications. Another alternative is using a facial mask to deliver anesthesia. A facial mask is used during shorter or less invasive procedures, such as ear tube placement examinations under anesthesia and central line placement. So the less invasive you are in the airway, the less adverse respiratory complications you are likely to encounter.
0: What a great discussion. Let's keep this going with another clinical case. The next patient is a nine-month-old male brought to the emergency room due to concerns of swallowing a button battery. An x-ray confirms that the battery is in his esophagus. On exam, he is actively coughing and appears ill, but maintaining his airway at the moment. His dad reports that he has also been having nasal congestion and fevers on and off for the last five days. His respiratory panel is positive for RSV. Does your preoperative assessment change for a patient like this who urgently needs general anesthesia?
2: Yes. This case is considered an emergency, so we definitely need to proceed to the OR for surgical extraction of the bottom battery. The longer the battery remains in the esophagus, the greater risk of worsening injury and potential perforation of the esophagus. The risk outweighs any possible respiratory complications due to anesthesia
0: from the RSV. So for an emergent scenario like this, what can be done to optimize your patient and minimize the risks of general anesthesia?
1: Well, when proceeding with surgery in a patient with high risk of respiratory complication, we should optimize with preoperative short-acting bronchodilators such as albuterol 20 to 30 minutes prior to the induction of anesthesia. Excessive secretions may also lead to an increased risk of laryngospasm. Once we have an established IV axis, lacoparolate can also be good to minimize the secretions. In a patient with known or suspected asthma exacerbation, systemic steroids should be considered.
0: Dr. Mavarez, after this patient has successfully completed the surgery and is now recovering, as a pediatric anesthesiologist, is there anything you are specifically looking out for?
2: Of course. The risk does not end right after surgery or after extubation. Did you know that postoperative respiratory adverse events such as atelectasis or bronchospasm may happen more frequently in these patients? So, a patient's respiratory function should be closely monitored in the post-anesthesia recovery room or PACU.
1: These patients also have an increased oxygen requirements that warrant longer observation times or even admission to the hospital for observation.
2: Given the high risk of respiratory adverse events, the patient will require post-operative mechanical ventilation. So, I will request an ICU bed for post-operative care.
0: Wow, I like that you're having to think not just about during the surgery, but also the treatment for the patient after.
1: Once the patients have successfully recovered from anesthesia, the parents should watch for signs such as fever or increased work of breathing.
2: I recommend a follow-up with the pediatrician after the procedure to make sure there are no further complications or concerns.
0: What a great discussion today. I have really learned a lot, but it's time to wrap up our episode. Dr. Mavarez, can I have you summarize the key take-home points for our listeners?
2: Of course. I think it is very important for the listeners to know that patients with a recent or a current upper respiratory infections are at increased risk for perioperative respiratory events that may include life-threatening situations such as laryngospasm or bronchospasm. To avoid these adverse respiratory events in an elective surgery, the surgery should be delayed for up to four to six weeks after symptoms have subsided. And finally, in urgent cases where proceeding with surgery is vital, there are ways to preparatively optimize the patient to minimize the risk, although a lot of these patients may require postoperative mechanical ventilation and going to the ICU.
0: Wow, that really summarized it well. Thank you so much for coming on today's show, Dr. Mavarez and Dr. Solorzano. I also want to thank Dr. Alina Bubb for helping produce this podcast.
1: Thanks for having me here today.
0: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the discussion today. An additional thank you to Dr. Ivan Florentino, Dr. Lisa Leggio, and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Check out our website to see how you can receive free CME credit for today's episode. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Thank you.